Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Our scripture reading today is going to be from John 10, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 30. Jesus speaking. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls to his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger's. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, but one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He is a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, It was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading. You may be seated. So 
to get uh, started with examining this passage this morning, I've asked Mark to bring up a short uh, two-minute YouTube video that um, I found maybe about five years ago when I was preparing to teach this passage at BSF. So just uh, it illustrates nicely one portion of the passage you just heard read. One more time. Oh, one is. Searching for that this week, I came across another one that's really neat too. Or this most of is really, a full three months uh, of food without needing any refrigeration or special storage. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So when I was searching for that this week, I came across another one that you can find out there where it's foggy. Uh, it's totally foggy, and so you can barely you can see maybe one sheep. And he gets out there and he's calling them, and then they start coming out of the fog, which is even. Uh, more powerful because, you know, they can't visually see him, but they hear his voice. So in any event, um, I thought that was just a good way to get us started this morning. But when Pastor Bob informed uh, me that uh, we would be studying the Gospel of John earlier this year, and he asked the other elders and myself, are there any portions of John that you would like to teach um, during this uh, study that we're going to go on through John? This passage in John 10 uh, immediately came to mind Um, the one that Pastor Bob just read for us, because it's definitely among my favorite passages in God's Word. And there's uh, several reasons for that. Uh, One of them has to do with a wedding gift that Karen and I received. And I know this will be hard to see in the back, but we had received this drawing that a lady in the church we were attending at the time uh, had done for us. Uh, It's it's an illustration of John 10.14. I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Um, it was actually a lot nicer when she gave it to us. It's been faded pretty severely. I've had it in my work offices over the years. And, uh, and so it just early on, I was a new Christian at that time. And early on, that was just uh, that gift meant a lot to me at our wedding. Um, but then about um, 
20 years ago or so, we were preparing for it to have a men's retreat at the church I attended in Pennsylvania at the time. And so the leaders got together, and we were, at that time, we did the teaching. We didn't have an invited speaker like we do at family camp. So the men did the teaching, and we were trying to figure out, well, what are we going to teach on at this men's retreat? So we bounced around a bunch of different ideas, and uh, we prayed about it, and the Lord led us to uh, have seven different men take one of these metaphorical I am statements of Jesus that we've started to talk about recently, and we each took one of those, and I had the privilege to teach on I am the good shepherd, which in many ways is the centerpiece of the passage this morning. And as I was preparing for that men's retreat teaching session, that's when I think I really fell in love with this passage. But before I share a bit more about what I learned back then, as well as what I've discovered or rediscovered over the past 10 days or so, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this morning's message, and then we'll we'll dive in. So please join me as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this incredible and wonderful journey that you have been taking us on through the gospel according to John. There is so much truth uh, to learn uh, in these passages we've been covering, Lord. And um, as we were reminded again this morning through our memory verse, Lord, that this truth uh, will set us free. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would do that this morning for us, that as we uh, look into the truths in John 10, 1 through 30, that you would use it uh, to help us to know you more. Uh, that you would use it to set us free so that we can be more effective in our service of you and in our relationships with others as we seek to be effective as your ambassadors and your ministers of reconciliation before the lost and dying world that is all around us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So three weeks ago, Pastor Bob gave us a very comprehensive analysis of the title, I Am with a focus on how Jesus used that title in John chapter 8 to draw a proverbial line in the sand, so to speak, regarding his identity uh, as God. As most of you will remember, that title in the New Testament comes from the Greek expression, ego emi, which is literally, I am, I am, in English. Um, And it's a title, or really it's more accurately a name, that God originally gave to Moses in Exodus 3.14. Now, I'm not going to rehash what Pastor Bob taught us during that message, but I do want to strongly encourage you to listen to it online if you missed it, or even if you didn't miss it, um, because the truths that are in that message, the first of two messages that Pastor Bob did for us on the bulk of John 8, in my mind, those are some of the most important truths that you encounter in John's Gospel. Because that title or that name for God that Jesus applies to himself over and over again throughout the Gospel of John is a vital component of Jesus' assertion of his deity. That he is, in fact, the Son of God. I'll bring up our slide. Am I doing this right, Mark? Is it not on? Oh, it's not on. That helps to turn it on. There we go. There we go. That he is, in fact, um, the Son of God that, who took on flesh to become the Lamb of God in order to take away the sin of the world. And not just uh, sin past, but sin past, present, and future. So uh, we've been examining this uh, twofold purpose, and then um, we're quickly moving towards John 17, where we'll really see 
the second aspect of this in the unity of the church. But we'll even be touching upon that a little bit this morning. Now, during Pastor Bob's um, I Am message, um, he very briefly touched upon uh, these seven well-known metaphorical I Am statements of Jesus that are really hallmarks or distinctives of John's Gospel account. In fact, when many students of the Bible are asked to name something distinctive about John's gospel, they will almost inevitably include these seven I am statements in their response. But as Pastor Bob showed us, there are other I am statements by Jesus in this gospel that are actually of even greater significance than these seven, including those three huge ones that we considered in John chapter 8. As a result, Pastor Bob did not spend much time talking about these seven during that message. But our passage in John 10 this morning gives us an opportunity to take a closer look at two of the seven in more depth, as Jesus declares himself to be both the door and the good shepherd. Declarations by Jesus that he used to highlight specific aspects of his deity. Aspects that help us to understand how he relates to us and also how we can better relate to him. And with each one, Jesus is essentially saying, because I am, I am, you can know and experience me as fill in the blank. So, for example, because I am, I am, you can know and experience me as your good shepherd. So we previously looked at Jesus as the bread of life back in John chapter 6. And then we considered Jesus' declaration that he is the light of the world. We did that the past two weeks. um, And that truth was powerfully illustrated for us last week through Jesus' miraculous healing of the man born blind. As for these third and fourth metaphorical I am statements that we are looking at this morning, they are really closely related Uh, at least in terms of the way Jesus chose to illustrate them for us. Because he uses imagery from the life of a shepherd, something his original audience would be very familiar with. And so before we delve into the passage itself, I thought it would be worthwhile to review several of the other passages in God's word where the shepherd imagery is used, specifically to describe God and how he interacts with his people. And there are plenty of, there's also some negative examples of shepherd imagery in God's word too, but those are usually talking about uh, earthly shepherds. And then you see a lot of these positive ones, and that's what I'm going to focus on, the positive ones that relate to God. Because again, Jesus, in talking to these Pharisees and what we're seeing in John 10, the only Bible they have is the Old Testament. And so he is often... Uh, speaking with allusion to things in the Old Testament, and probably some of these passages come to mind. So before we get into these different passages, let me start with a little test of sorts. If I asked you to name one such passage where there's shepherd imagery in God's word, besides John 10, of course, you would say Psalm 23. That's the one that comes to mind first. We're actually going to look at that one last because it actually provides a nice segue into something else we need to cover in the way of background. So first, let me show you a few verses from, first of all, Isaiah 40, 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, 
and gently lead those who are with young. And then one from Jeremiah 31. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. And then there's a really wonderful uh, longer passage that you find in Ezekiel 34, where God provides a really neat contrast between irresponsible shepherds and true shepherds. And I'm only going to read a couple portions where he's talking about the true shepherds, uh, first in verses 11 through 16 that you see up here on the screen. For thus, And as we do this, I've underlined all the I wills uh, in the passage. So take special note of all these I wills, these wonderful promises in this passage. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, myself will, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys, and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And then a little bit later, in that same passage, down in verse 20 to 24, God says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns and scattered them abroad, Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. And it seems to me that it's probably pretty likely that Jesus may have had that passage in mind or was hoping at least that the Pharisees would have that passage in mind as he declared himself to be the door and the good shepherd in John 10. And please note that, you know, even these references to David, um, God spoke these words to Ezekiel long after the reign and life of King David. So therefore, this servant is not that David, but rather a future son of David that we understand to be Jesus. And then one more. There's one more in Ezekiel that I'd like us to look at. And it's Ezekiel 37. This is from the uh, wonderful dry bones prophecy of chapter 37 regarding the future restoration of Israel. It says, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to my given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. But then not to leave the New Testament out of it, there's also a couple neat references 
of shepherd imagery in the New Testament. One in 1 Peter 2.25, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And then another one from Revelation 7 uh, is another neat verse um, where it says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then finally, we'll come back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And it was during my preparations for that men's retreat that I mentioned during my introductory comments that I was introduced to a wonderful little book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And that little book opened my eyes uh, quite a bit to the life of a shepherd, which in turn added a lot of clarity to my understanding of both this psalm as well as John chapter 10. And since most of us have not raised sheep, I'd like to share just a few of the facts that I learned from that book about sheep and shepherds before we get into the content of our passage. Because I believe this will help you glean even more from Jesus' teaching in John 10. So first of all, more than any other class of livestock, sheep require endless attention and meticulous care. And as a result, sheep are highly dependent on the skill and care of the shepherd. The shepherd alone can make the difference between a flock that thrives and flourishes and one that struggles and suffers continual hardship. For example, sheep are susceptible to a condition known as being cast or cast down. This refers to an old English term for a sheep that is turned over on its back and cannot get up again without assistance. It most frequently occurs to sheep that wander into a narrow swale or depression in the ground and lie down. And then the slope of the ground will often cause an imbalance in the sheep's center of gravity. And without much warning, the sheep will end up on its back, as you see in that picture uh, on the one side there. You know, it's very common for this to occur with pregnant sheep, And sheep cannot survive long in the cast position. In fact, if it's very hot out, they will die in just a few hours due to the buildup and expansion of gases in their rumen. Uh, A sheep has four chambers in its stomach. The rumen is one of those, and that gas buildup will cut off blood circulation, and it will actually result in killing the sheep. And for this reason, the shepherd has to be very vigilant for any missing sheep. He will almost immediately fear the possibility that they have wandered off and perhaps become cast, and he will search diligently for them 
since he knows that they not only cannot survive for long in that position, but of course they would also be even more susceptible to predators uh, in that position. And this probably brings to your mind a parable that Jesus used in Luke 15 when talking about God's concern for lost sinners, where Jesus said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep, which was lost. Furthermore, sheep are notorious creatures of habit. Left to themselves, they will completely destroy the land they are grazing on, rather than moving on their own to better pasture. As a result, a flock of unmanaged sheep will quickly become thin, wasted, and sickly. They need to be kept on the move so that they have good pasture on which to graze. And then sheep will also pretty much eat anything in their path. And in fact, um, there are, and there are some plants that will make a sheep quite sick. A white camas is an example of that, which can easily kill a younger lamb. So a good shepherd puts a lot of time in inspecting new pasture for potentially poisonous plants or other hazards. Sheep are also quite skittish. But at the same time, they can be ignorant of dangers around them. For example, they often will not drink from a stream that has any significant flow to it, hence the reference to quiet or still waters in Psalm 23. But on the other hand, it's been reported that some sheep will mindlessly eat their way right off the edge of a cliff. As our resident farmer Curtis put it to me in a text message earlier this week, sheep are the dumbest animals in the world. (laughs) And as I heard someone once say, It's generally not a compliment when God refers to us as sheep in his word. And it's no wonder we need a good shepherd. By the way, uh, you'll see on your sermon's note sheet, we didn't go through them, but there's also a list of verses uh, that reference people as sheep. I believe King David was the first one to do this in 1 Chronicles 21.17 when he was appealing to God about God's judgment following David's ill-advised decision to take a census of the people. And David goes before God and says, hey, put this on me. This was my decision. These sheep sheep are innocent. So that's, I think, the first time you see it. And some of those verses that are listed on your sheet uh, will reinforce uh, some of what I just shared about sheep while others simply remind us that we are the sheep of God's pasture. So I'd encourage you to review those uh, on your own a little bit later. So with that hopefully helpful background, let's spend the rest of our time this morning exploring the details of the first 29 verses of John 10. And we're saving verse 30 for next week. Pastor Bob will pick up and cover that, as well as uh, a few other things from the end of this passage this week. So first of all, while it may seem obvious, John 10 picks up right where John 9 left off. As Pastor Bob pointed out to us last week, the chapter breaks in God's word, which were added much, much later, uh, they can cause us to occasionally overlook the, um, I guess, the fluidity of thought that's going on, or certain trains of thought, or ongoing dialogues in God's word, and this is an example of that. Um, where there's a continuing dialogue between Jesus and a group of Pharisees 
that, that followed uh, Jesus' healing of the blind man. So you'll recall that the previous chapter ended with Jesus confronting the Pharisees over their spiritual blindness after they had thrown that man that Jesus had miraculously healed out of the synagogue. In fact, their treatment of that man, I think, provides some pretty clear evidence regarding the type of shepherds that they were. So as chapter 10 begins, we see Jesus change the imagery of his challenge to them from spiritual blindness to that of the shepherd and their sheep, something that I think every one of his listeners would understand quite well. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. As we saw earlier, this type of imagery is fairly common in Scripture. So the Jewish leaders should have had no trouble understanding Jesus' message here. And as Pharisees, they would certainly have been very familiar with those Old Testament passages we looked at earlier. Unfortunately for them, as we see down in verse 6, they totally missed Jesus' point, at least for the time being. Now the sheep pen in verse 1 would likely be an enclosure made of rocks with an opening for a door, as this artistic drawing and a modern photo illustrate. Some pens would have been also converted caves or dug out from a hillside, but again with limited guardable access. And in Jesus' day, many communities where sheep were raised had communal pens like these, where the herds of several shepherds could be kept together at night. And one of the shepherds, or sometimes a hired hand or hireling, as we will see later in the chapter, would lie across the entry at night to guard the sheep. Then in the morning, the shepherds would come and call their sheep out using a unique call, as we saw in that video, and lead them out to pasture. Now, with regard to the identity of the thief and robber in verse 1, some commentators have suggested that these terms refer to false messiahs or even the devil, um, however, I tend to think that Jesus is being a little more direct here and is likely speaking about, to his immediate audience about them, uh, the Pharisees, and the way they were shepherding God's people. As the key spiritual leaders of Jesus' day, these men had been called to be shepherds of God's people, and though they declared themselves to be pious, God-honoring leaders, their actions proved that they were actually destructive of the flock, as we saw with the man healed of blindness. And their motives were mostly focused on self-preservation. They had lost sight of God's purposes and plans for the redemption of mankind. By the way, the Greek word translated thief generally refers to someone that steals by deception or stealth, uh, much like a modern-day uh, shoplifter would do. Whereas the word robber comes from a term that implies stealing by means of violence, as one who robs someone uh, with a weapon. Um, that same Greek word, uh, translated robber, is actually the one that's used in talking about Barabbas, as well as the thieves that were hung on crosses on each side of Jesus. So I think what Jesus is doing here when he says thief and robber and uses both of those, is I think he's just covering all of the bases for the various ways in which false shepherds exploit and even abuse those that they are supposed to shepherd. Now for me, it's the last part of verse 3 and then verse 4 that is really uh, key in this uh, first section. 
of the, of the passage where we learn that Jesus calls and leads his sheep. It says he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. This teaches us that Christ knows the believer and the believer knows Christ, recognizes his voice and hopefully follows and listens to him by recognizing and staying in step with his will. And as I pondered these words of Jesus this week, it brought to my mind what I think is one of the saddest passages that we find in the Gospels. It's in Matthew 7, uh, and I think it's also in Mark, where Jesus explains that calling him Lord and following him as Lord are not the same thing. And the end result of only doing the former without doing the latter is not good. For instead of hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, it will be, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we need to follow him where he leads, not try to get him to follow us where we want to go. Because Christ is the one that leads and we follow, not vice versa. And then take note that he leads us He doesn't drive us like you see in those Western cattle drives with the whips and the dogs to keep the herd moving along and staying together. He walks just in front of us, leading us along while watching over us with meticulous care and awareness of our needs. I think it was the second uh, hymn, one of the hymns this morning does such a great job of illustrating the way Jesus leads us gently and with great care and concern. He's not driving us. He's not forcing us along. And then it's important for us to remember that we don't share the leadership position with him. Jesus is not our co-pilot, as a popular bumper sticker states. He owns the plane and he pilots it. In fact, he owns the sky it flies in and everything else for that matter. He's the one that's in control. We have the privilege of going where he leads us, And this begins with listening for his daily direction and allowing him to set our daily agendas. We need to stay in tune with and in step with our Savior by staying on the path he leads us down, even and perhaps especially when it is not the path we would choose for ourselves. Or when unexpected interruptions upset our schedule or plans. The question is not whether or not Jesus is calling us. That's a given for the follower of Christ. The question is whether we are taking the time and making the effort to listen and then follow. To seek to know where he is already at work and then join in that work. There are many voices in the world today that are competing for our attention. We need to be intentional about shutting out the noise and listening for the voice of our Savior. And that's why those daily quiet times that we often mention here at Family Bible Church are so very important. We need those if we're going to be able to clearly hear our Savior's call. Well, since most of those listening apparently did not understand Jesus' symbolic illustration, as we see there in verse 6, he follows it with an application that has eternal significance for all of mankind. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out 
and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So here Jesus explains, first of all, that the true shepherd protects and promotes life, whereas false shepherds, the thieves and robbers, take away life. And as the door, Jesus alone enables us to move from man-centered religion, through which we futilely try to earn God's favor, to a Christ-centered faith and a redeemed relationship with our Creator. Now, Jesus first illustrated this concept as being the only one that can bridge the gap that sin created and ultimately open the way to heaven back at the end of John chapter 1. There you'll recall that there was this more or less private conversation that he had with Nathaniel, where Jesus references the latter of Jacob's dream that we find in Genesis 28. In fact, Jesus declares himself to be that latter when he tells Nathaniel, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So here in John 10, Jesus is essentially expanding that explanation to a wider audience when he declares himself to be the door, since it is only through him that sinners can be delivered from bondage to sin and the separation from God that results from it. Now we'll explore this essential aspect of Jesus' deity further when we come to John 14 and the sixth of Jesus' metaphorical I am statements where he declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life. However, before we move on, I do want you to take note of the three results that Jesus lists here in this section when we enter through him as the door. We are saved, we find good pasture, and we live an abundant life. So let's uh, briefly look at each of those. So the word saved there in verse 9 means delivered safe and sound or made whole. So unlike the irresponsible shepherds, Jesus came not to steal, but to give. And his free gift is abundant, eternal life, what we commonly refer to as salvation. And it's important for us to recognize that eternal life is not something we'll receive in the future. It's a present reality for all followers of Christ. As Jesus defines it in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But a response is required on our parts. We need to receive or claim that gift by faith. Now, not to promote lotteries, which are a terrible and destructive use of God's resources, but Jesus' gift of salvation is somewhat analogous to every person in this world holding a winning lottery ticket for the jackpot because he died for the whole world. But those winning tickets are useless if we don't claim the prize. And far too many people never even scratch off their ticket to see if they've won. As for those of us that have, we need to embrace the present reality of eternal life by staying in God's word daily and asking for God to reveal more and more of himself to us through things like prayer and and having those daily quiet times. As for finding pasture, I believe that's a reference to God's word, our spiritual food. It's actually, the, I think it's, it may be the only time in the New Testament where that particular Greek word is used. Um, 
But remember what I said earlier about sheep continually trampling down their own pasture if they are not properly led? Jesus does not allow this to happen to us when we follow him unless we neglect his word. I know that I am continually amazed at the depth of God's word, how you can come back again and again to a familiar passage and there's always something new to learn and apply. But I need to make the daily effort to not only read his word, but study it. And I need to ask the Holy Spirit to help me discern its truths and how to apply those truths to my life. Then the final result Jesus promises here is an abundant life. The Greek word translated abundant means superabundant in quantity and or superior in quality. Superabundant in quantity and or superior in quality. And for me, I think perhaps the best way to experience the fullness and abundance of that life is by intentionally choosing to live in God's inexhaustible supply of the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that fruit represents a vital part of the abundant life Jesus has secured for us on the cross and through his resurrection. Are you experiencing that kind of life right now? A life that is marked by the fruit of the Spirit? A life that is marked by joy and peace even as we walk through trials and tribulations? I believe it's Jesus' desire for each and every one of us, regardless of what our present circumstances might be. So if you are not experiencing that fullness of life, that abundance of life, I think one good key question we need to ask ourselves regularly is whether or not there is any unconfessed sin in our lives. Is there some ongoing sin that is robbing you of the abundant life that Jesus has for you? Or have you allowed your focus to turn to the cares of this world so that Jesus does not have first position in your life? Idolatry may seem like an old-fashioned word, but it is very much alive and well today. And we need to remember that even good things can become idols if they end up supplanting Jesus from the throne of our lives. So let's be vigilant to guard against that and also to help one another avoid that pitfall if we see signs of it cropping up. Well, moving on then, Jesus declares another aspect of his identity. Oh, there's the three there. He will be saved, find pasture, have abundant life. But then moving on to uh, verse 11, and I'm not going to read all of this, at least not yet, but Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, One who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Through this declaration that he is the good shepherd, Jesus shows us that he is no ordinary shepherd and that he far surpasses even the all-stars of earthly shepherds. For not only does he care for his sheep by providing for a restored and redeemed relationship with the Father, along with good pasture to feed on and an abundant life, he also does four other things for us as the good shepherd. Jesus dies or lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus knows his sheep. Jesus brings other sheep into the sheepfold. And Jesus takes up his life again. 
Now, the word translated good here means intrinsically good, beautiful, and genuine, an ideal that others may safely imitate. And Jesus reveals the first aspect I just mentioned, that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep by contrasting himself, the good shepherd, not with the thief and the robber, but with the hired hand or hireling. There were times when shepherds would hire others to look after their sheep. But since tending the sheep was just a job for the hired hand, the sheep usually were not cared for as well as they would be by the shepherd, who had a vested interest in their well-being. And if a wild animal threatened the flock, the hired hand, not owning the sheep and not desiring to risk his own life, would flee. But the shepherd would stand in the gap and use his rod to beat off the attack. You might recall David's words to King Saul in 1 Samuel 17, just after David had volunteered to go up against Goliath. King Saul initially told David that he would not succeed since he was only an inexperienced youth, to which David replied, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. But the enemy that Jesus has protected us from as our good shepherd is much, much more dangerous than any wolf, bear, or lion. For our enemy is sin and its necessary judgment by a holy God. And Jesus laid down his life to defeat that enemy for us. He died as a substitute to pay the penalty for our sin and satisfy God's wrath. As I talked about during the Lord's Supper devotional earlier this month, Jesus is both the propitiator and the expiator of our sin. And he did not die as a martyr killed by men. He died as a substitute, willingly and voluntarily laying down his life for us. And whereas the death of a shepherd normally meant peril to the flock, here it brought life to the flock. And then in verses 14 and 15, Jesus reveals a second aspect of his ministry as our good shepherd, namely his intimate and complete knowledge of his sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In the Gospel of John, the word know means much more than intellectual awareness. Rather, it speaks of an intimate relationship between God and his people. When Jesus says he knows his sheep, it means he knows everything about us, including our names, our natures, and our needs. Remember Mary in the garden on the morning of Christ's resurrection? All it took was Jesus saying her name for her to recognize who he was. And he knows every one of us just as well. He also knows our natures. He knows our tendencies, our fears, our strengths, and our weaknesses. And as a result, he ministers to us uniquely in light of those individual natures. And then, because he knows our natures, he also knows our individual needs. And he doesn't just know them. He desires to meet them. We just have to recognize that he knows our needs much better than we know our needs. So that when he meets them in ways we do not expect, we can accept the fact that he always knows what is best for us. But then, as his sheep, we are also called in verse 14 to know him. 
A man by the name of J. Oswald Sanders wrote a classic book many years ago entitled Spiritual Leadership. And one of the principles that he highlights for effective spiritual leadership is this. You are as intimate with God as you want to be. You are as intimate with God as you want to be. As Matthew 5, 6 states that principle, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So how does your life and your priorities currently demonstrate a desire to hunger and thirst after righteousness? And in what area or areas of your life do you need to be more transparent with Jesus? You can't hide anything from him anyway, so you might as well come clean and seek his help to overcome anything that is keeping you from knowing him more fully. And then verse 16 gives us that third aspect of his ministry as our good shepherd. He says, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. We saw that earlier in some of the past couple of the passages from the Old Testament. Now I'm pretty sure that we don't have anyone here this morning that was raised Jewish. So verse 16 carries special meaning for us Gentile believers. Based on this verse, we can ascertain that the sheep of the verse 1 sheep pen was a reference to Israel or the Jewish people. But here Jesus extends that sheep pen to include Gentiles, for Jesus was sent for the whole world. Gentiles are the other sheep Jesus is referring to here. While the Jews of Jesus' day were looking for a Jewish Messiah to rescue them, God's plan of redemption from the beginning was for both Jews and Gentiles to be united in one flock under the care of one shepherd. And then the last aspect of Jesus' ministry as our good shepherd is there in verses 17 and 18, where Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So we touched upon this earlier, that from a human point of view, it may appear that Jesus was executed by the Romans on a cross by the will of the Jewish leaders. However, nothing could be further from the truth. For here, Jesus makes it clear that he willingly laid down his life for us. But then he also took his life up again three days later, when he rose from the dead, defeating death, and making eternal life possible for you and I. He gave his life for us so that we could experience his life in us. Now, a large measure of how we experience Jesus' life in us today, I believe, is through our interactions with others. Jesus is the good shepherd because he has the interests of his sheep as a priority. He did not seek to exploit those he loved. Is this true of your relationships with others? Are you a good shepherd? Or do you see people more in terms of what they can do for you? Jesus calls us to be shepherds for one another, to watch out for each other, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, and to ask each other the tough questions. Are you loving your wife like Christ loved the church? If you are using social media, Are you using it in a God-honoring way? How are you doing in the area of personal purity? Are you honoring your parents? 
And he calls us to seek ways to meet the needs of others before we seek to meet our own needs. We live in a dangerous world that is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. It's like one big bad wolf that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And it may not seem like a fair fight at times. But let's never forget that we have the good shepherd on our side, the one that willingly laid down his life for us and then took it up again, conquering sin and death forever. So now as we transition into the final portion of this week's passage, we see in verses 19 through 21 that there is a split between those who are listening to Jesus' words here. Some still think he's demon-possessed, but Jesus' patience in continuing the dialogue is beginning to bear fruit as it appears that some are moving in the direction of faith. Bringing us to verse 22, where it says, Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now you won't find the festival of dedication mentioned in the Old Testament because it was established during the 400-year period between the Old and New Testaments, what is commonly referred to as the intertestamental period. Today, this festival is more commonly called Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights, and it is celebrated mostly in December, often in close proximity to our Christmas, or Feast of the Incarnation, though Hanukkah can occur on the Jewish calendar as early as late November. So the events of this final section of John 10 take place about two and a half months after those we just covered, and only three or four months before Jesus' crucifixion. So Pastor Bob will probably talk briefly about the origins of this festival next week. But for now, uh, in looking at this passage, it's important for us to recognize that during Jesus' day especially, uh, Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights or the Feast of Dedication was one of the times of the year when Jewish interest in the coming of Messiah was especially high. Hence those questions you see there in verse 24. How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ or Messiah, tell us plainly. But Jesus uses this opportunity to remind them of what he had told and taught them previously. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They had failed to respond to either the witness of the miraculous works he had done or his clear teaching about who he was because they were not his sheep. God has his sheep, and in his sovereignty, he knows who they are. They are the ones that hear his voice and respond. As Pastor Bob often reminds us, there is a mystery here that we cannot fathom or explain, but we can accept it and rejoice. For the Bible teaches both divine election and human responsibility, and it is beyond our finite human minds to understand how those two things can fit together. As the Apostle Paul declares at the end of Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! Then returning to John 10, Verses 28 and 29, the last two verses that we're going to look at this morning, we see one more truth that flows from the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd. 
And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The good shepherd eternally secures his sheep. Now, Pastor Bob is going to cover this in much more depth next week. But I just want to briefly mention that this particular blessing of being one of Jesus' sheep highlights a final aspect of what is really kind of a threefold relationship that Jesus has to his sheep. First, he has a living relationship with them because he cares for his sheep. Then he has a loving relationship with them because he laid down his life for his sheep. And here we see that he has a lasting relationship with them, for he keeps his sheep, and not one is lost. We are secure in Christ, not because we hold tightly to him, but because he holds tightly to us. He has us firmly and securely in his grip, and he promises to never let us go. A living, loving, and lasting relationship with Jesus that gives us the freedom and confidence to live abundantly as his followers and to tell others about all that he has done for us. What a Savior we have in Jesus. So how do we or how should we respond to these truths that Jesus, our Good Shepherd, calls and leads us, is our door to an eternal, abundant life, and that he has laid down his life for us and eternally secures us? Well, I just want to uh, briefly look at two more passages in God's Word to help us answer those questions before leaving you with a few final questions to ponder. The first passage comes from Hebrews chapter 10. It's verses 19 through 25. And it contains a wonderful list of let us suggestions for us to pursue. There the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness or confidence to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And it's interesting as you look at these three let us statements here, each one of them is grounded in one of the three great Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. You have faith in verse 22, hope in verse 23, and love in verse 24. Because Jesus is the door and has opened up a new and living way for us, we can respond with assured faith, unwavering hope, and an others-focused love. And then, when it comes to shepherding others, please consider these words of the Apostle Paul that he used to exhort the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He said, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And while it is true that the Apostle Paul was speaking here to the elders of the church of Ephesus, and while it is also true that pastors, elders, and deacons do have a special calling and responsibility to watch over the flock, I believe we all have a role to play in the effective shepherding of others. Certainly fathers and uh, really both parents, by extension, have a duty along these lines in the home. And even older siblings have a role that they can play by watching over the younger and more vulnerable members of the household. But then we can also help shepherd one another, even if we do not hold a formal leadership position in the church. We can all take heed and watch over others by gently but firmly holding one another accountable to God's word and to not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So let's covenant to do that as a fellowship, especially as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. Amen? So, those final questions. Have you entered Jesus' sheepfold by the door? Or are you futilely trying to gain access by some other way? Are you spending time every day reading his word and listening for his voice so that you can faithfully follow him? How are you specifically shepherding others? Are you following Jesus' example as the good shepherd? And then finally, as we always ask each week, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? So to close this week's message in prayer, I'm going to do something just slightly different. I'm going to read a benediction from the book of Hebrews that is another place where God's word makes reference to Jesus as our shepherd. So I'm going to have you guys stand as I read these couple verses, and then you can remain standing for our final hymn this morning. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.